You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I'm Melissa Lee. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. It is the busiest week of earnings season, and so far we're seeing an anomaly develop. If you beat, your stock drops. If you miss, your rally. Plus, the pipe dream. We'll take a look at an under-the-radar trend in the recent SPAC boom, financing the SPAC takeovers. And the most compelling story in retail, Bud does something it hasn't done in decades, and the show must go on. That's all ahead. But we begin with today's market movers. Dom, she's got all the numbers. Dom. And what a big show it's going to be in terms of catalyst, Melissa, because like you pointed out, the busiest week of earnings season this time around. We've got 111 stocks in the S&P reporting this week. 13 of them are Dow components. Now, speaking of those Dow stocks, they have been underperforming all day, but we are well off our session lows at this stage. Now by one third of one percent, 200 point declines plus at one point today. The S&P 500 just about flat on the day and the Nasdaq had been outperforming. It still is, but only up one third of one percent at this stage. If you take a look at one of the big themes over the last several months that's been developing, Melissa mentioned those SPACs, the special purpose acquisition companies. Well, new issues in terms of IPOs. Look at the beginning over the course of the past maybe few months of the past 12 months. They had been tracking pretty closely with the S&P 500. And look at that. That line has just gotten bigger and bigger. That divergence is that now is at the widest level that we've seen over the course of the past 12 months. IPOs and new issues continue to outperform. That might be a caution flag for some investors out there. And speaking of crazy market action, we've been talking about GameStop for a while now and the massive short squeeze that's been happening. People closing out, losing bets, buying up the stock. Well, just to put it in perspective, GameStop has now returned crazy amounts more over the last year than even Bitcoin has. And just to put it in graphical perspective, the white line, Melissa, up almost 1,500 percent in 12 months. And that's, by the way, off the highs. Bitcoin, meanwhile, a very respectable 300 some point gain there. But look at that performance gap. Bitcoin actually underperforming by a very wide margin. GameStop shares at the highs today, $159 and change. We'll see how GameStop shakes out in the afternoon trade. Melissa, back over to you. It actually turned negative. I felt like we should go breaking news on that one when it dipped into the red. So many trading halts already today. I know. It's unbelievable. We'll keep watching that. Thanks, Tom. It's a big week for earnings with more than 20 percent of the S&P 500 reporting quarterly results, including Apple, Microsoft and Tesla so far. Companies that beat estimates have actually seen their stocks fall, while companies that missed estimates have seen their stocks price rise. How can this be? For more on this trend, we go to Samir Samana, senior global market strategist at Wells Fargo Institute, and Michael Cugino, president of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Gentlemen, great to see you. Samir, I'll start off with you. Maybe, maybe this is just a sign of what is going on in the markets in terms of what we've seen since the end of the third quarter to date. We've seen the S&P go up by something like 400 points. Um, So we're anticipating a lot when it comes to this earnings season. Yeah, exactly. That's the key is, you know, so much of investing comes down to expectations versus reality. And what you're seeing is the areas that are reporting that growth um, continues to be, you know, at at a pace that's maybe a little bit less robust than it was for much of the last few years. And so people are continuing to rotate away um, from those growth areas and towards some of those cyclicals where, although earnings might be disappointing, people are starting to look at the reopening trade. They're looking at what the world looks like a year from now and seeing that there might be much more room for those areas to appreciate from a stock price standpoint, whereas their earnings could also rebound much faster. 
Do, Michael, do companies, though, get a free pass when it comes to the earnings call, right? I mean, Samir was talking about looking past this year and looking to next year. Do they get a free pass still in terms of giving guidance? And what is the incentive for a company to actually come out and give positive guidance when things are still uncertain? There isn't much incentive to do that, really. Um, and I think right now the thing that's difficult with earnings are that there's so many variables in play at the moment that investors have to sort through that is making it really hard to make any assumptions or predictions based on the future. There are general consensus views that I think have some accuracy to them. The post-COVID trade, the reflation of the economy. Um, you know, there is going to be growth at some level going forward. Yes, the Fed's on the sidelines. We're going to have more fiscal stimulus. All these things are real. Um, but it doesn't translate easily to really specific predictions right now. And so you see scenarios where companies beat, but they issue weird guidance and they go down or the opposite. They miss and they say something positive and the stock goes up, which gets to your original point, Melissa, before we started the conversation. And I think we're going to see that continue throughout this quarter and probably well into into 2021. The interesting thing is on an earnings basis, uh, the comps get real good after Q1 because of last year. But the question would be from a valuation standpoint, whether we've already front loaded those gains uh, in 2020 and early 21 here. I mean, when you're going year on year versus the depths of the pandemic, yeah, things look pretty rosy. Um, Samir, are we going to get enough data out of this earnings season to justify the rotation that the market has tried to do in terms of going into value stocks, going into the cyclicals and away from technology? Because, I mean, just last week we saw mega cap tech rally. And so it seems like there is a reluctance to go full bore into the value area. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, honestly, we would say earnings aren't quite the catalyst that they have been in the past. I mean, really, the, the better you know data to track right now would be more of those high-frequency indicators. So look at what caseload is doing. Look at how vaccine rollout is, is you know, progressing. Um, look at whether containment measures are you know, starting to ratchet up or ratchet down. Um, to us, it's going to be those types of things that drive kind of the markets on a day-to-day -day basis. And that you know, rotation that you mentioned back towards technology, back towards work from home, you know, coincides very nicely with an uptick in COVID, with some slowdown in vaccine rollout, as well as some new measures in the UK. So right now, that's going to be the biggest driver for markets until the next stimulus package. But that might not be for another month, month and a half. Michael, what are you what are you hearing from from clients in terms of the, the appetite for risk? And I asked you that question in the context of the conversation that I was having with with Dom about GameStop. That's just one area of the market. That's certainly one story stock out there. But there are pockets of these high flyers yeah. in the market. There's a search for yield search for return. We're seeing that in the SPAC market, which Goldman Sachs says could be one of the signs of a frothy market. Where are we in terms of this market and, and, and the desire to go higher, despite what earnings season might tell us? SPACs, GameStop, and Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's two investors right now. Uh, there's the, the trader, the retail investor, the, the alpha generator type that you're seeing investing in a lot of these things, and you're starting to see valuations exceed in those areas. And then I think you have the sort of more traditional institutional type investors, more conservative investors who, who aren't quite buying some of this stuff yet. And it's going to be interesting to see which of those investor groups is ultimately accurate in the long term. Uh, are the conservative types being left behind uh, or should they have been getting involved in some of these other areas more quickly or vice versa? I mean, from our standpoint, we're a more conservative type of investor base. So we're looking at the more traditional areas. We're using diversification. Um, you know, we would use gold example, for example, as a hedge 
against uncertainty versus Bitcoin. Um, and we're looking at the value stocks, the, pa- the post-pandemic stocks on a valuation basis, as well as the sort of macro trade thesis. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're not getting involved in SPACs or we're not in GameStop or, or other stocks of the day, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but there are two markets and, and there's a, a yin yang going on there right now with respect to who's performing at any given time. Yeah, I assume that uh, neither of you are on Reddit uh, anytime soon. Thank you. Good to see you both. Samir Samana, Michael Cugino. Turning to the latest on the vaccine front with Moderna announcing that its COVID-19 vaccine appears to offer some protection against variants that were first discovered in the U.S., U.K., I should say, in South Africa. Meg Terrell sat down with Moderna's CEO a short while ago. She joins us now. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, that UK variant, of course, has now been detected here in the U.S. as well. Uh, There are multiple variants of concern that are being tracked right now. That one associated with the UK is known as B117. And then there's one also associated with South Africa called South Africa called B1351. Now, Moderna presented some results looking at how well its vaccine induced uh, neutralizing antibodies specifically against those variants. The news was good for B117, uh, but for the B1351, the South African variant, they did find that the low, the levels of neutralizing antibody titers were about sixfold lower for that variant. However, they still say they think the uh, levels are high enough to provide protection against the disease. Nonetheless, they are already working on testing both a booster dose of the original vaccine to see if it can increase the protection, uh, as well as testing a new vaccine targeted toward that uh, strain, 1351. We talked with CEO Stefan Bancel about that this morning. Here's what he said. There will not be need for an efficacy study. Again, this has to be confirmed by the regulators, but that will make sense given it's already done in the flu. And if you think about mRNA technology, because mRNA is a platform, That new product, 1273.351, uses the same chemistry for the mRNA, the same chemistry for the lipid, and the same manufacturing process. So the products are very similar. They're just a few mutation changes, like the natural virus B1351. So Mel, talking about how quickly they can make the pivot there, but also talking about how this could end up looking a lot like the flu in terms of needing to get a booster every year. That is boosting Moderna's stock today. Melissa? Yeah, recurring revenue is what the analysts want to see for a company like Moderna. But Meg, this is particularly good news given the news that we got from Merck, which is ending its COVID-19 vaccine program. Yeah, it's fascinating to see this much smaller, less proven company, Moderna, surging ahead, testing a next generation vaccine. When you're hearing from one of the vaccine giants, Merck, saying essentially that it's stopping the development of its two COVID-19 vaccine uh, programs today, essentially because early stage uh, studies showed that the immune response just wasn't stacking up, either not as high as natural infection and not as high as the vaccines that are more advanced. And so they're discontinuing those, but they are continuing work on drugs for COVID-19, which is probably something people were paying closer attention to for Merck anyway, because they are in the lead with an antiviral drug, and they expect to have results from that in the first quarter. That will be very closely watched, Mel. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Coming up, if I were a regulator, I would be hyperventilating. <laughs> That's what former Goldman Sachs Lloyd CEO Lloyd Blankfein says about Bitcoin. We'll look at why and the regulatory environment surrounding it right now as a new administration takes over. Plus, the stimulus sales boom. Some restaurants are saying that checks in the mail brought co- consumers in the door. Can that continue or is it a one and done deal? We'll speak with one of them ahead. And the stock RBC says is the most compelling story in retail. 
The Exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Former Goldman Sachs chief Lloyd Blankfein says regulating cryptocurrencies could be a nightmare and undermines exactly what makes them popular in the first place. If you cannot monitor who's getting paid in the financial system, how can the regulators, do we want, the, do we want that to work out well over the long term? Now, this could, you know, like a lot of things, this could be workable, but it will undermine the freedom and liberty and, and uh, kind of lack of... Uh, lack of transparency that people like about it in the first place. So that's the conundrum that Bitcoin will have to deal itself out. If I were a regulator, I'd be, you know, I would be kind of hyperventilating at, at the success of it at the moment, and I'd be arming myself to deal with it. And incoming Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the government could curb their use because of the potential for illicit activity. For more, let's welcome Philip Gradwell, chief economist at blockchain data and consulting firm Chain analysis. Um, Philip, great to have you with us. It seems like anybody who is operating in the Bitcoin space, and it could be anybody, it's somebody who's selling a fund or somebody who trades Bitcoin, says regulation is good for the industry. So what kind of regulation would you like to see happen? Because all of these, a lot of people are talking about, uh, you know, it's used for illicit activity, not being able to trace it. But what are the what are the true issues that need to be regulated in your view? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. And actually, I think we have the regulatory framework uh, in place already. You know, cryptocurrencies are already regulated in the US under the Bank Secrecy Act. They've been regulated since 2013, and they're regulated globally by the Financial Action Task Force. I think actually a lot of people have been buying Bitcoin in the last year because the industry has made the strides to really control that illicit activity. You know, in our company at Chainalysis, we actually can see who is using cryptocurrencies, and we can track it from its illegal uses. Uh, and in 2020, there was less than 1% of all the flows were related to criminal activity. So there's a regulatory framework already, and people are now really getting it in place and getting comfortable with it. I want to get at that, that notion that you can't trace where Bitcoin is, is going to or coming from, because uh, in a blog post, you actually tracked the Bitcoin flow um, surrounding the Capitol riots, December 8th, um, your company said that one donor sent 28.15 Bitcoin worth over a half a million dollars at that time uh, to 22 separate addresses in a single transaction. Can you walk us through what you are able to see in terms of tracking such transactions? Yeah, so this is where I think you know, Mr. Blankpoint gets a little wrong. There is an enormous amount of transparency about the transactions that happen in Bitcoin. So we can see when money moves from what's known as an address to another address, which is similar to your bank account number. The key extra step that was needed in that investigation was to connect that address to the you know, people involved in the capital riots. But actually, a lot of them had posted their Bitcoin addresses publicly. And so we were able to actually see for this address that they said was theirs, the Bitcoin go into it. And through some other investigation, that was linked to the donor. Can we can we say that perhaps these these people are, are fairly unsophisticated Bitcoin users to actually post their addresses publicly and that if you are a true criminal, you might not be so brazen 
and it might be harder to track those addresses. Uh, it certainly is harder, but that's where the regulatory framework that exists uh, is so important. You know, law enforcement can actually go to a cryptocurrency exchange and ask for some information around who holds the account, and they have to have that information through the Know Your Customer information that must be submitted. And actually, in the last year, you know, Chainalysis software has been used by law enforcement to make those links into these exchanges from groups like North Korea that you know, uh, Blankfine said wasn't possible to trace. And that's actually resulted in Department of Justice uh, actions being taken. So do you think that a lot of these people who are saying that Bitcoin is used for illicit reasons, and that's the primary reason why we should regulate Bitcoin, does that argument just fall by the wayside? Aren't there places in the dark web where criminals are request payment via Bitcoin and it is very difficult to trace them? So it's absolutely true that they do request payment in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, and people buy you know, illicit goods and services using that. And that is the case for all currencies. The thing that's actually unique about cryptocurrencies is how traceable it is. It's like if you get one end of a string, you keep pulling and you find out where it ended up, which is very different from, say, the dollar system, where those transactions could be hidden through money mules and through shell companies. So we have this transparency to be able to trace through the transactions uh, back to a place like an exchange. But it's certainly true that people do use these assets you know, to buy illegal things. But at least we can see it. All right. Philip, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Philip Gradwell. You can catch the entire interview with Lloyd Blankfein at CNBC dot com slash pro. Coming up, there's an under the radar part of the SPAC market that is quickly becoming Wall Street's new favorite instrument. We will tell you what it is and why some say it is risky and excludes too many investors. Plus, corporate America says they stand ready to help the new administration on COVID-19 from logistics to transportation. Could it help speed up the slow rollout? We are back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a check on the markets right now because it's a very different picture, at least for the Dow from the open. The Dow is now down by 68 points. Remember, the low of the session was down 432, S&P 500 and NASDAQ in the green. But again, a very, very big week for earnings with 20 percent of the S&P 500 reporting this week. Taking a check on some of the sectors that are moving, it looks like a bid for safety right now with utilities higher by almost 2 percent. Real estate also doing well, up 1 percent. Energy and materials are the laggards here. Well, financing SPAC takeovers has become one of Wall Street's new favorite investments in attracting some very big names in finance. Leslie Picker joins us now with a closer look. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. That's right. For many, it's literally a pipe dream. Pipe stands for private investment in public equity. Amid the SPAC boom, these have become highly sought after exclusive sidecar investments that help fund takeovers. Now, there are a few reasons for this. Number one, pipe investors are privy to material details, including what the SPAC target is before the merger announcement. Number two, pipe investors are often given restricted shares at a discount, either to the IPO price or the market price. In 2020, pipes generated more than $12 billion in supplemental capital to help fund 46 uh, SPAC mergers, according to Morgan Stanley. But with all of that dry powder raised through SPACs last year, there could be more than $100 billion worth of pipes committed over the next two years. The alpha generation that, that it represents, obviously, is, is attracting a broader group of investors, which has been really helpful and I think will only benefit the product as we, as we move through the, the, the balance of the year. 
But if you're not one of the select few investing in pipes, there are a few things you should know. These deals can dilute your SPAC stake. There can also be pressure on the stock once the pipe investors are able to sell, usually a few weeks after the deal closes. And pipe investors may have information about the target that you don't have, Melissa. All right, Leslie, stick around. We want to bring in Awesome Grabowski Sheikh. He's a partner at the law firm of Baker Hostetler for more on this. Um, awesome, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. What is the issue here with pipes? They've existed for, I want to say, forever. <laughs> but obviously, with the surge in SPACs, it's, it's a, a more prominent area of finance. Well, it's a great question. And there's a lot of reasons why these types of transactions uh, make sense. Pipe investments provide strategics and other institutional investors more than just early mover advantage. It gives them better informed early mover advantage. And when compared to retail investors, there's tremendous information asymmetry. Uh, And the strategics, they have the upper hand. They enter into confidentiality agreements early in the process, and that gives them a peek behind the curtain before the transaction's announced. They perform diligence, and they have the benefit of time to structure and negotiate the terms of their investment. So at the end of the day, uh, they know the company better, Mm -hmm. they understand the valuation better, and they've thought through the contours of their investment. So, Leslie, is really the issue here for the retail investor who might be invested in a SPAC, who might be, it's almost like a, a double um, disadvantage in investing in a SPAC because you might not have information about the SPAC itself, but then you might also not have the same information that a pipe investor might have. That's right. It's the information asymmetry that Awesome uh, mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. There's also the risk of dilution with these things. There's dilution anyway that's oftentimes embedded into a SPAC with regard to the SPAC sponsor. Uh, Now you also could get dilution with the the pipe, especially once the owners of that pipe are uh, no longer restricted and are able to sell their stake, which it's important important to note if you're an investor, that takes place just weeks after the merger closes. Usually with an IPO, you might be looking at an, a lockup as a potential uh, event that could put pressure on your stock, but that won't take place usually for another six months. With these pipes, it could be between four and six weeks, kind of depending on how it's actually structured. So that's something to keep in mind uh, if you are the owner of the SPAC and purchased it at you know, the IPO or thereafter. Awesome. I would imagine you're really busy these days. Can you give us an insight into what your pipeline is like, uh, you know, over the next six months, let's say? Well, look, I think we all know that the SPAC market has had tremendous activity in 2020. It was a banner year, and we can expect a lot of M&A activity to flow from that. I think it's only natural. Uh, But you, you were speaking earlier about the risks to the retail investors, and I just want to point out there's risks and there's rewards. And, and yes, the risks relate to potential dilution. And historically, that's always been the case with respect to SPAC investments. You're thinking about the dilutive impact of the sponsor shares entering the market. And similarly now, retail investors will be thinking about the potential dilutive impact of the pipe shares flowing into the market. But there's a lot of benefits that also flow to uh, retail investors. So for example, these pipe transactions are providing the funds that the company needs, and they're replacing the funds that are leaking out through redemptions. And that gives the company balance sheet strength, and it gives them the ability to execute on strategic initiatives and grow the company. And all of that in order to the benefit of the retail investor. I totally get that, Leslie, but does that also give, I mean, it gives a balance sheet 
more ballast, but does it give the stock price more stability? So the answer to that question is mixed, Melissa. Mm -hmm. After a month post-closure, there was some Morgan Stanley data that showed that SPACs that had a a pipe backing for making that SPAC merger, uh, they were up more than 40 percent in the month post uh, that that closure of the deal. Those without a pipe saw returns of about half of that, up about 20 percent. Then there was some Goldman Sachs data that took a look at at some more longer term returns. uh, And they found and they compared it to the S&P 500. They found that uh, both with a pipe and without a pipe lagged the S&P by about three basis points uh, without a SPAC. I'm sorry, with a SPAC, uh, with a pipe rather. Sorry. uh, And then uh, 30 without a SPAC. So, uh, you know, over time, they're both returning negative uh, to the S&P, but uh, at least in the short run, short run, uh, they seem to be providing benefit uh, and that double of those without a pipe. All right. Leslie, thank you. And our thanks as well to Awesome Grabowski Shake. Thank you for having me. Now let's get to Sue Herrera for CNBC News Update. Sue. Good to see you, Melissa. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, says vaccination facilities cannot guarantee people lining up for a shot will get vaccinated. He says the city could administer 500,000 doses per week, but it isn't getting the supply to do that. We're expecting 107,000 more in the next few days, the weekly resupply. But again, look at that number. That doesn't even give us the beginning of what we need for a week. Again, we have a supply problem. In France, the number of COVID patients in ICU wards has hit its highest level since December 9th. France's finance minister says no decision on a new lockdown has been made, but tighter restrictions will make it difficult for the country to hit its economic growth targets. And here at home in Colorado, those workers at a cafe are expressing thanks to a very generous customer who left a $1,400 tip, 200 for each employee. The person added a note at the bottom, quote, COVID sucks. You are up to date, Melissa. I will send it back to you. There are good Samaritans out there, Sue. Thank you for bringing us that story, mm-hmm. Sue Herrera. Coming up, RBC says American Eagle is ready to soar. AMC says the show will go on and Budweiser will do something this year that it hasn't done in decades. That's all ahead in Rapid Fire. The Exchange is back right after this. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Mike Santoli, Julia Borson, and Fast Money Trader Tim Seymour, CIO of Seymour Asset Management. Good to see you all. Let's get to our first story. RBC Capital Markets upgrading American Eagle. The firm says the company's Airy brand is the most compelling growth story in retail. RBC is raising the stock to outperform, bumping its price target to 30 from 23. The note declaring that Airy's momentum is real as the fastest growing mall based brand. American Eagle has been flying under the radar. Shares are up more than 260 percent from its 52-week low. Uh, Mike, I feel like in this day and age, in this context of today's market, it's also worth noting that it's got 16% short interest. Absolutely. Like a lot of the mall-based chain stores uh, has has these sort of structural bets against it, basically thinking that it's a declining business. Not only is it up that much uh, off the lows, it's outperformed the S&P on a one-year basis, as has Abercrombie. And it's it's actually kind of fascinating because it doesn't really necessarily even look terribly cheap, uh, although maybe also not overvalued if, in fact, Aerie can 
have this kind of top line momentum that they're saying. So really a lot of uh, comeback stories in retail when most people least expected them. Yeah, mall-based brand. Um, when I saw that, I thought, why are you going to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good time to talk about mall-based brands, Tim. Um, and yet we are seeing uh, amongst the retail movers, at least today and over the past few months, that a lot of these mall-based brands, left-for-dead companies well, in some it- instances, are, are up. Yeah, I think it's a case of in retail for many of these stories, less is more. So uh, store rationalization, being able to, in some cases, close close doors with better negotiating power than they might have six or nine months ago is the story for American Eagle. It's been the story for Macy's. It's been the story of, again, one of those trends that's been accelerated by by COVID is is that a lot of doors needed to close. Um, I don't, as Mike said, I don't think this the story is terribly cheap, and I, I think you have a case here where at you know 18 times or so in a great scenario outlook for Aerie, I think a lot of good news has been priced in here, and we've seen the stock. It's it's a stock. You've had multiple runs in the last four or five years where you had these uh, 60, 70 percent downdrafts and drawdowns that were then followed by these massive outperformance runs, and I think we've had it. All right, next up. The Kansas City Chiefs and Tampa Bay Buccaneers will go head-to-head in the Super Bowl, but there is a major commercial shakeup in the works. You won't be seeing some of the usual suspects. Budweiser is sitting out for the first time in 37 years. Coca-Cola and Pepsi also will not be advertising their namesake sodas during the game. What is replacing them? Some first-timers like Chipotle, Vroom, DoorDash, Fiverr, and Scott's Miracle Grow. Julia, do you think these newcomers are paying the same price tag as a Budweiser might have. Well, look, I think that we never know exactly what each advertiser is paying, but the average this year, about $5.5 million per 30-second spot, is just a hair less than the $5.6 million last year, pretty much in line. I think what's interesting here, Melissa, is that we are going to see Budweiser and Pepsi and Coke continue to try to tap into that conversation around brands and ads that happens around the Super Bowl. And we will see, say, PepsiCo advertise some Frito-Lay and some of its other companies, even though it's not going to have an ad for the Pepsi beverage in there. It is going to be putting all of that attention in really focused on the halftime show. So there's still going to be a lot of energy around those brands and Super Bowl mm-hmm. ad season because that's sort of what it's turned into. And I think these other companies like DoorDash, we've seen those stocks just skyrocket as it's been such a stay-at-home play. The question really is how much they really need to use that to amplify all the growth they've had so far this year. I thought Budweiser's excuse, Mike, was really interesting that it's going to be using that ad spend um, with the Ad Council, which is a nonprofit group, to advertise the benefits of uh, COVID education, the vaccine program, et cetera. Yeah, it's kind of a um, it's kind of a high road version of, mm-hmm. of what really a lot of brands had done during the Super Bowl. You remember whenever there's a kind of this prevailing social issues out there recent years, you've seen all these brands attempt to do it through commercials and try to send a message that's uh, that, that's kind of on the right side of a lot of these issues, for lack of a better term. But it is uh, it is fascinating for Budweiser in particular, just because they used to, you know, the Super Bowl was its Super Bowl every year uh, in terms of advertising. We're going to see a cannabis company advertise, Tim. I tell you, you know, we, we've had this and at least the, even the rumor of it was enough to to give Acreage a big boost uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is a case. Scott's Miracle Grow. Uh, if you think about uh, both uh, food safety and hydroponics and some of these themes, I, I think are alive and well. I, I don't think there's any question. Uh, cannabis as a national issue probably would be well received, although 
Uh, you know, good for Bud for, for uh, giving away uh, a free Bud, uh, a, a beer on Bud.com uh, to spend some of that money. And, and God bless watery American beers, which I think are still better than the IPAs that Mike Santoli drinks. <laughs> they have their place, right? By, by the way, Mel, I, yeah. I was going to mention, though, a long tradition going back to 99 and 2000 of companies using IPO cash and plowing it right into Super Bowl ads when it comes to DoorDash <laughs> and Vroom, which is happening this year. <laughs> Good use of money. AMC, let's move on. AMC is saying the show must go on. The movie theater chain has secured $917 million in financing to keep bankruptcy at bay, it executed a commitment letter for about $400 million in debt financing while raising more than $500 million in equity since mid-December. In a statement, CEO Adam Aaron said an imminent bankruptcy for AMC is completely off the table. Investors clearly like what they are hearing. Uh, the stock is up double digits on pace for its best day since late last April. Julia, we are hearing by the week more and more movies being delayed in terms of release, which is not good news for AMC. It almost seems like um, they better get a new movie into their theaters. Otherwise, they're burning that money. Yes. I mean, look, this is a stock that has been so volatile. Every announcement of vaccine progress of, uh, you know, different states and cities staying closed for longer. I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles and movie theaters just are not open. There are other areas where theaters are open. It's about a third of the market right now where theaters are open. But this is really a Band-Aid to hold over until theaters can reopen, which people are hoping will be in the second half of the year. But, Melissa, the real question is, when will audiences really want to come back in big numbers? And do these theater chains really need to invest to make sure that their experience is meaningfully different, not only from what we remember in terms of safety and all of that, but also meaningfully different from what we've all gotten very much used to at home, especially considering that now we will be able to stream movies on HBO Max that are also available in theaters. Tim, AMC's market cap is $977 million, which is almost as much as they raised in its most recent fundraising. How do you view a stock like this? I, I, to me, this is kind of a no touch just because you've had a major short squeeze here. Funding well into you know, 2021 doesn't tell me a whole lot. Um, COVID uh, dynamics, I think, are very much a headwind on top of, again, those trends that were a headwind going into this. And, and, and look at what what Disney, HBO Max, so Time Warner, AT&T have done in terms of uh, new releases through their own streaming platform. Um, if anything, I think this is a story about, you know, where you might see some strategic involvement. Remember when we had even the whisper of Amazon around AMC, what mm -hmm. it did to the stock. Uh, I think you've gotten a lot of great news. And I think you could have a couple more days of this of this squeeze, but I don't think this changes the story at all. All right. And don't miss AMC's CEO today at 3 p.m. Eastern on Closing Bell and a first on CNBC interview. Finally, it seems like everyone is starting a podcast. And while most of them are not big earners, that hasn't stopped the likes of Spotify and Amazon from pouring money into them. According to Edison Research, the podcasting industry as a whole brings in less than a billion dollars in ad revenue, even though more than 90 million people listen monthly. But sometimes a gamble is worth it. Brands like The New York Times and Vox Media managed to bring in eight figures. Um, Julia, though, it's different to break through. It's so hard to get. I mean, if, if you and I started a podcast, it could be the hottest podcast ever. But the chances of us breaking through <laughs> and, and toppling, you know, the top 10 are, are nil. I don't want to say nil. Yeah, well, Melissa, slim. I have no doubt if we, if we started a podcast, it would be awesome. But you are right that one, the top 1% <laughs> of podcasts draw something like 90 plus percent of all 
of all listens of those podcasts. And so there is this question of how to monetize the mass of those podcasts. But the fact that less than a billion dollars is generated in ad revenue so far does mean that there's a lot more potential um, because people have been listening to a lot more podcasts, even through the pandemic. There was some concern that that would drop off as commute times declined. But I think is so interesting right now, Melissa, is this question of what Apple wants to do with its podcast network. For Apple, it's probably not going to be about generating ad revenue. It's probably going to be much more about keeping people as part of that ecosystem where they subscribe to a lot of different services. And the podcast is just another thing to keep me paying my my monthly bill to Apple. The contrarian part of me, Mike, tells me that uh, even if during a pandemic, podcasts still can't generate more than a billion. When is it ever the industry going to generate more than a billion in advertising? No, it's a very good question. It's obviously gaining a lot more market share in terms of attention hours than it's gaining in in ad dollars. I think there's a legitimate question as to just exactly how much of an ad load you really can lay into a podcast. People are used to it, just having a couple of ad breaks. And I know there was a downgrade of Spotify shares not that long ago based in part on the the fact that the monetization of, of podcasts was not that great. So it's a, it's, it's a really a huge question overhanging uh, this whole area. It's not one of these automatic digital ad plays. It just grows and grows and grows like search. Are podcasts a reason to be in a, a spot, Tim? If you and Julia are, are putting one out, certainly in long <laughs> form, there's no question about it, Mel. Um, I, like, I think with Spotify, not cheap, uh, four and a half times EV to revenue on a 21. Um, but the fact that they've been continuing to consolidate assets around the world, the, the megaphone deal, again, a different uh, format and, and essentially a different demographic and, and business form that they're meeting. I, 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 they have to figure out how to properly monetize this. The valuation is extraordinary. But, but uh, they're out there and I think you stay there. All right. Mike Santoli, Julie Borson, thank you. Tim, I'll see you later on Fast Money. And speaking of podcasts. All right. See you later. We've got a podcast. Subscribe to The Exchange and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Still ahead, restaurants across the country are getting a sales boost from the latest round of stimulus checks. So what could a third round mean? And will the spending stick around? We'll talk to Checkers and Rally CEO Francis Allen about that next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Restaurant executives from the likes of TGI Fridays, Checkers and Noodles and Company are crediting the latest round of stimulus checks for a small bump in January sales. And with another round of stimulus possible, will bigger checks lead to a bigger boost? And will the spending last? Joining us now to discuss this is Francis Allen, Checkers and Rally CEO. Francis, great to see you. Great to see you too, Melissa. Thank you for having me on. Have you also seen that bump in January? And what would you expect if consumers got another round of stimulus? Will that be spent on things like fast food or will it be diverted to uh, other areas? Uh, Yeah, so, uh, you know, as you know in the news, the restaurant industry has really suffered through this pandemic. So at Checkers and Rallies, we feel incredibly unfortunate to have had a very good year in 2020. And we projected that we would be up significantly in in Q1 of this year. And that has been boosted even more by these stimulus checks. I mean, stimulus checks always help the QSR industry and many of the other segments, actually. But it's very short-lived. It's it's just for a week, maximum three. When you say you're going to do better in Q1, that's year on year. So you're comping pre-pandemic quarters, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, and we've done a lot. So stimulus has, re- has helped, um, but we've, we have uh, what we consider to be a more pandemic-proof model. If, if there is such a thing, we've got closed kitchens, 
um, we have double drive-through lanes, and uh, we've actually converted one of those drive-through lanes into a dedicated e-commerce lane. Uh, we've put 15 new procedures in. Our focus is really on keeping our, our guests and our employees safe. We've put in 15 new procedures to help do that. So I think people are feeling much better about uh, coming to us. So we're outperforming the uh, QSR segment by over 600 basis mm -hmm. points right now. But it's not only that. There's a number of different initiatives that we've put in place as part of an overall rejuvenation package right. from our own Mother Cruncher chicken platform uh, to uh, making a shift to more premium products and higher price combos, as well as the leaning into delivery and e-commerce, as I mentioned before. So a lot right. of things that, that are just enabling us to take advantage of these tailwinds. Mother Cruncher chicken, that sounds kind of good, Francis. That um, is good. <laughs> when you think about stimulus, I mean, you mentioned that it's a small boost because it's a one-off. A consumer will get a check, the check is spent, right. and that's gone. How do you think about stimulus in terms of how it is allocated? Do you think perhaps stimulus checks should go to certain people, maybe the unemployed, for more targeted help, for a longer-lasting impact of that dollar amount? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's hard to say who should, who should get it and who shouldn't. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot of people who have dipped below the poverty line uh, during this pandemic. And I, I do think it's very important that we put in the best possible programs we, we can to help people who really by no fault of their own have fallen onto very hard times. Um, you know, at, at, at Checkers and Rallies, we're very fortunate not to have had to lay off anybody during this time. In fact, we were able to give our very valuable team members a um, bonus and a thank you pay um, for much of the pandemic. And uh, we're really proud of, of supporting those, uh, those jobs and the communities that we serve. Francis, great speaking with you and getting your perspective. We appreciate it. Francis Allen. Thank you very much. Still ahead, it's not just Amazon looking to help the Biden administration combat COVID-19. Thousands of other companies are ready to pitch in, but it may not be completely altruistic. We've got the details next. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Corporate America has let the Biden administration know it is ready to help combat COVID-19. Eamon Javers joins us now with the details. Eamon. Yeah, we're seeing this fascinating public-private partnership emerge sort of on the fly as different companies and different trade associations decide they want to get involved here in helping as the new Biden administration tries to ramp up to 100 million doses of the vaccine in 100 days. That's their set goal. Take a look at some of the companies that have weighed in with offers to help, starting with Starbucks, which is offering in Washington state, they're offering models of Starbucks for vaccination centers. They're calling it a Starbucks with Starbucks with only one product, the vaccine. Amazon, of course, last week offered to help the Biden administration help with vaccinations of its employees, as well as communications and personnel assistance. Google is offering $150 million to promote vaccine education efforts. Honeywell in North Carolina opening, uh, offering logistical help with what they call the last mile of vaccine distribution, getting it all the way to its destination. Microsoft and Costco are also involved in a Washington state effort. Airbnb made an interesting offer uh, to set up Airbnb locations 
locations for vaccination. That can be used in medically underserved areas. And I spoke with Eric Hoplin earlier today. Uh, He's the new CEO of the National Association of Wholesalers and Distributors. He said his organization wrote a letter to the Biden administration on Friday offering their particular expertise. Here's how he described the effort. We have relationships with about 180,000 healthcare providers across the country. These are pharmacies, hospitals, clinics, nursing homes uh, that we supply their medicines uh, and, and their, their medical equipment every day. Uh, so we have those existing relationships that we can use the, the distribution network uh, to start to accelerate the distribution and help the Biden administration and the country meet that 100 million goal. So the idea here is to use the existing supply chains and existing networks now to service as accelerants for the vaccine distribution process. And of course, guys, you know, there's opportunities here on the business side for all of these companies to make some money doing some of this work. Uh, and there's also an important opportunity for them uh, to re-step up the global economy, right? I mean, you can't get the economy going again if you can't get the vaccine out there to the last mile. So there's, there's some self-interest here. And of course, anytime you're dealing with companies dealing with the government, state and local, and at the federal level, there's a lot of opportunity for relationship building as well. Back over to you. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington. Meantime, coming up on uh, Fast Money tonight, BTIG's Julian Emanuel says speculative mania in the market could spark two scary scenarios. We'll tell you all about them. That's tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Meantime, that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.